Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Jerry and Kieran from Sports Thoughts. Guys, thank you very much for joining me. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Jerry and Kieran from Sports Thoughts. Guys, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having us, Jake. I'm excited. It's our pleasure. So many people know what you guys have been up to, but for those that are not aware, do you want to just start with a a brief background from your perspective, how you got involved and and what you're up to at the moment? Sure. Um, I guess I can start. So this is Kieran speaking. I uh, played sports my whole life. I don't know what age exactly, but eventually I realized I wasn't six foot seven and didn't have a 40 inch vert. So (laughs) my way into that world was not going to be as an athlete. I'd always been really fascinated in math and science. And so when I went to college, I studied computer science and literally within a week of being at school, I found out about an internship opportunity with a NBA analytics company. Basically, they were working with some of the camera tracking data. And I worked there for about a year, fell in love with it, learned a lot about data science, machine learning, um, and especially predictive analytics within the sports world. And it was pretty quickly apparent to me that some of the stuff I was learning and practicing could be helpful and applied into like sports betting markets. So I, I started doing that for a few years. And then this year, uh, <laughs> partly out of boredom, and partly just to provide value and for fun, decide to share some of the stuff I was doing with baseball and make it public. And so some people listening may know me on Twitter as at BarryHorse29, I think, <laughs> and uh, and Reddit as BarryHorse. And yes, it's all grown really fast. This is my first summer really in the quote-unquote industry of sports betting publicly. Uh, but yeah, I guess I started this website with Jerry where we just it's called sports thoughts which is pretty descriptive we just give our thoughts about sports yeah that's a very good way to put it um about my background i'm jerry everyone i had a accounting background in in college i studied business and accounting um, and so i did have to work a lot with numbers and spreadsheets Um, i also grew up playing sports i love sports my whole life i'm far from six seven in fact, I'm a foot shorter than that. And so like Kieran, uh, being an athlete was an impossibility. Um, but I knew that I loved sports, so I did want to do something related to it. And uh, yeah, I started in 2014 really noticing and paying attention to the betting markets. I didn't start betting then. Um, I just kind of looked at lines, had views on things, and kind of uh, jotted them down. And a year later, I looked back at all my notes to see if I was, you know, if I could actually make it in this world. You know, obviously, if I was completely just wrong about uh, everything, then I would have never entered it. But I felt that I could learn a lot while being in it and that I could do fairly well. And so in 2015, I think this was our second year or third year of college. Um, when Kieran and I actually became roommates, we started doing it much more seriously, started uh, <laughs> really putting in more and more of my, my own money, and yeah, just grew from there. And today, like Kieran said, we have a website and a podcast called Sports Thoughts. Really began as nothing serious. Um, we texted each other one day uh, saying, why don't we just start a site where we literally jot down our sports thoughts? And that's why we bought the domain, Sports Thoughts. That's why everything is called 
what it is. And it just grew from there. So it's been kind of a, a crazy journey, really, because none of this was really planned. It just happened naturally. And uh, yeah, it's still new to me to this day. And it's exciting. So I'm curious, how much study and research did you do in the in the beginning? Obviously, a lot of people, you know, fall into sports betting or are exposed from it from a young age, and certainly in the U.S. with that widespread sort of sports betting throughout the '90s and 2000s, and even up until recently, how do you get to understand, you know, markets, odds, odds movements, all this type of thing from from you know each of your perspectives? What were the things that sort of led you into it, and, and how much time did you spend on the the background, the study, and the research? So I think for me, just when you're really young, you hear about like maybe a horse race or even like different futures, like odds to win a Super Bowl or the World Series or whatever, and you hear a number like 8 to 1 or 20 to 1. That that number and, and that kind of math always made sense to me. I never really was aware of spreads or anything like that. I, I didn't know what a money line was until actually – this game, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say the company, but if it is, you can beep it out. Um, on ESPN, they have this game called Streak for the Cash, where the goal is to pick 25, I think maybe it's more now, straight games correctly. Um, and, and they'd always have weird numbers on there, like, will Team A beat Team B by 10 or more points? And so stuff like that started to bring you know, winning margin and spread into the equation for me, and I became aware of all that stuff. And yeah, I mean, this this whole industry, I feel like at least through the media has grown a lot. So I've, I've received like a lot more exposure to it from that the last decade or so. But as far as me actually like getting money down and like participating in these markets, uh, I was not that involved until 2014. And then, like Jerry said, seriously in about 2015. Yeah, exactly. Um I think it's one of those things where you really need to be watching games and observing lines and be doing that for like a pretty substantial amount of time to actually get a feel for it. Because if you just asked me when I was, you know, a freshman in college, before I started paying attention to the markets, like what does uh, team A minus eight over team B mean in basketball, for example, like I would have no concept of what the minus eight really meant. It's just as as you watch more. Uh, games and as you follow more spreads and see which teams cover on which side and by how much you kind of get a feel for uh, what the numbers actually mean Um, same thing with the odds uh, same thing with the lines and so in preparation back to your original question it it does take a lot of time and experience i think to get a certain level of just awareness and and feel for the whole industry so let's get straight into sort of things that you value. And I've heard you guys talk about, you know, defensive explosiveness and different efficacy ratings or whatever you might do or metrics. A lot of people might look at yards per play differential or might have looked at it a number of years ago and thought that they're ahead of the curve. Some people might factor in DVOA, others might not. Others might look at, you know, Pythagorean win or whatever it might be. What do you guys value and what do you look at? Uh, let's just take NFL or college football, for example. What are some of the things that you're looking at day-to-day, week-to-week, or evaluating to, to go into, I guess, coming up with spreads or lines or percentage chances of, of teams winning? Sure. So I guess just sticking with football, one of my biggest goals in evaluating a team and or projecting a team is to adjust all of their results and production and stats to mean more or less based on the context of when the play was run and within the context of the game and the down and distance. And so to my best understanding, that's sort of the goal of DVOA, adjusting for strength of opponent and then a little bit of context. When I've tried to run stuff just purely off of DVOA, I haven't built anything when I backtest it that is too impressive on its own. Certainly nothing really worth like investing a lot of money in like very with very small margins basically um so i have basically done my best to build i guess my own version of dvoa that you know obvious stuff like a a two-yard run on third and first or sorry third and one is clearly more helpful than a two-yard run on second and 14 similarly a 80-yard touchdown when the game is 
56 to 7 with two minutes left in the fourth quarter really doesn't mean that much as much as maybe like a 20-yard touchdown when the game's tied late in the fourth quarter. And so, like you mentioned, yards per play, I probably, I wasn't around for this, but probably a decade ago could have been helpful. It's on its own largely meaningless right now, but some sort of context-adjusted yards per, per play is fairly helpful. So basically everything starts there, having some way to value your offense, defense, and special teams efficiencies. My weighting between the three is, I think, similar to what Football Outsiders, the creators of DVOA, use, which is four parts offense, three parts defense, one part special teams, uh, because it's been pretty established over time that offense is far more, not far more, but at about that proportion, more predictive than defense. So I start there. With baseball, it's much easier to account for individual players on the field. There's a little bit of that that I do with football. And then there's adjustments for home field and different factors like that, like travel factor. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot I look at uh, at a high level. Those are kind of the key points, though. I agree with Kieran. I probably use most of the metrics that he does. I think at a higher level, I want to reiterate his point, which is that uh, context is probably the most important thing um, because game to game, situation to situation, different things mean or or, or, are, va- or are differently valued. Um, and so depending on teams' motivations, depending on teams' uh, level of rest, depending on, you know, they're, they're, are they hot, are they cold, um, do they have momentum, everything matters, right, from, from game to game and situation to situation. And so building a model that accounts for that uh, is, is key, in my opinion. Can you give us an insight on, on how that's possible without watching every play and manually calculating the importance how do you go about quantifying that in a meaningful way so it's scalable? So I have a script that goes through and scrapes all the play-by-play data for every football game. And then for each play, in baseball, there's a concept called leverage index. Uh, that's It's pretty clever. It takes into account like how meaningful this at-bat is to the result of the game. Uh, I come up with something kind of like my own flavor of that for how meaningful this play is and how much it should be weighted for. And so uh, to answer, like I, I certainly don't sit down and track every single play. It's all automated. My background's all in data science, and I come from a software background. So that's all stuff that comes fairly natural to me. Yeah, Kieran has a much more... Uh technical background than I do. And so I don't have the skill set to do that. Unfortunately, I wish I did. Um, and hopefully someday I will have it. And so my, in general, my process of doing it is much more high level in which I actually start from watching the games. I have a model that spits out a general, you know, result or prediction. And then I do actually sit down and watch a ton of uh, game footage um, and, and watch situations and kind of uh, judge them in my own I guess, subjective way. And over time, I found that I've become more accurate that way. So from both of your perspectives, the average sort of NFL, not even average, but those that are listening who've been you know, betting for a long time, understand NFL you know, in, in pretty good detail. They can't go one for one with Bill Belichick on the whiteboard, but they understand what a lot of it means. How far off are they if they're using things like DVOA, yards per play, differential still, or you know, look ahead lines, some of these sort of general narrative things that that are out there in the sports betting world and community, are they a long way off getting to the level of being able to be finding predictive inputs to go into models and, and betting week to week and winning at college football or NFL? Or are they pretty close? They've just got to sort of be pushed over the edge a little bit with uh, a few more extra things. Well, first off, no one can go one for one with Belichick on the whiteboard, so they shouldn't feel that bad. Um I think that's a tough question, uh, especially with, I again, like we're both fairly young in this space, so I don't know how to compare to how helpful those things were even like seven years ago. But I imagine they were far more helpful than they are now. I think as far as I can tell, the markets are well aware of them. And like there, there's kind of standards in every sport now, like in, in college basketball, something called Ken Palm, 
uh, it's like an efficiency rating by a man named Ken Pomeroy. And I know the markets in college basketball are heavily influenced by those. So anything that's public and helpful gets kind of caught up to and, and built in. So are they far off? Probably not. But I, I seriously doubt the ability to make any meaningfully high returns using just like the very basic DVOA um, yards per play type stuff without adding some sort of, even if it's just a simple filter of when they mean more or less, or, or just doing anything to add some layer of nuance there. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's hard for me to say anything with certainty because I really don't know. I think far off is, it's very relative, right? So this is my honest opinion on this. I don't think most people are far off. But again, that slim margin between being average or below average or slightly above average, uh, the margins are very slim. But over the course of a large sample size and you know many, many, many bets and many, many seasons, uh, that small, I guess, margin is is very clear over the long run. So um, like Kieran said, it might be something very tiny, like a filter, but that can change a lot in the big picture. To to the point of being far off, I don't think you need to have any really significant edge, to be honest. Like, frankly, I think managing your bankroll is far more important. Like, you, you hardly need to be better than flipping a coin if you have solid bankroll management to be turning a profit. And, of course, like unless your bankroll is significant, if it's a really small margin, you're not going to be making much. But there's plenty of professionals who barely beat the threshold. If you use like a minus 110 line, a 52.3% win rate, there's there's plenty of professionals who are single percent above that, um, even less than 5% above that, and uh, still make good money by managing bankroll and perhaps like scaling what you're staking on a game based on your percent edge. And so that's why I think it's important to be able to calculate that edge so that you know uh, which sides are stronger than others. So that's something I wanted to touch on. Yeah, I think the the idea of calculating the edge is something that's always sort of been a tough thing to grasp. And I, I guess how do you guys think about it when you have something like NFL where it's a, a small sample size season and – a lot of things can happen within that within that season, but you just it's really difficult to get enough matches or games. It's tough to get a lot of bets down over a season. And how do you evaluate sort of the or how do you have confidence in the model when it could just come down to a small sample size? And there may not be a perfect answer, but what are your thoughts on that type of area? Sure. So I think the average better, even ones who are inclined to build models and look at stuff analytically fail to look at really just the true raw probability of events occurring. So like, for instance, people may have some sort of offense and defense efficiency thing that, or some way they come up with power numbers for teams, speaking of NFL, and they come up with some spread on the game without coming up with any implied probability of what a certain number does. And so one thing I think I do that's alarmingly unique, I think, is instead of just coming up with a number without anything attached to it for what the spread should be for every single NFL game. My model creates a probability distribution of the margin scoring, like winning margin of the game. And so whatever the mean of that distribution is, is the projected spread. But more importantly, there's a variance associated with that distribution. And so to answer your question, to select uh, like the volume of games you're betting and how many you're betting each week or each Sunday depends on a trade-off for me between how far off the spread is and what the variance is. Because you can look at, uh, say, like the mean of my spread for some game in my model is at six for the home team is minus six. Vegas is minus three. And you can look at the probability of like within this distribution of falling past that minus three. And that would differ based on the variance or how wide or fat the tails are of that distribution. So I'm I'm rambling about nerdy stuff now, but to answer your question, everything's a trade-off. I I lean towards being slightly more risk averse. So 
going for slightly lower volume of bets for the trade-off of winning at a slightly higher rate. Um, that's just a personal decision that I make because I prefer, I guess, like steadier growth of my betting funds than higher, like volatile moves up and down. And I am completely the opposite. <laughs> I would like to be <laughs> like Kieran, where uh, I I place only a few bets that I have very high confidence of winning. That's honestly, logically speaking, uh, much much smarter. But because I I do well, just I mean, like maybe to it, it's not much <laughs> for entertainment. It kind of depends on your situation. Like if you have the ability to get lots of money down, um, and you're not really concerned with the limits at your sports book, there's situations where if you have just slight edge, but it's on every game, then it, it, there's situations where it's worth it to bet 16 NFL games a week. Um, if you have like an actual discernible edge, um, sorry to interrupt you, mm-hmm. but I, yeah. I don't think it's like necessarily I'm right. It's just for my personal situation, what works. Yeah, understood. But uh, my point is that uh, sometimes the games I bet on, I don't even have a long-term edge on. I'm just betting for entertainment purposes. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's why I am uh, very open with the fact that I am degenerate many a time. Uh, but uh, to to back on a serious note, um, Kieran is correct, where our models project not only a spread, but also the chances or the probability distribution, as he said, of those different spreads occurring. And so ideally you would want a disagreement with the Vegas line and for your model to have low volatility. Um, That would indicate that it has a very strong disagreement and it's pretty confident about it. I'll make it clear too. I I may sound like a stuck up nerd, but I I bet degenerately for fun too sometimes. (laughs) I'll throw throw $100 on the Oscars every year for best picture. (laughs) So let's dig into that a little bit. Do you prefer, would you prefer to bet 16 games a week in NFL or 16 games a season? And I guess based on what you've said, if you had a, a perceived very high. Uh, edge on the market and you could bet one game a week versus having a small edge but having a lot of games where you can bet and putting aside the limits which is obviously a real thing certainly in this day and age if i was able to get unlimited (laughs) amounts down jerry and i both live in california and neither of us ever want to flirt with the law like i think both of us love our lives and would never risk anything yes and so without without flirting (laughs) with the law there's there's to where we are, there's some limits to what exactly we can get down. But if there were no limits, and maybe something like a betting exchange could be a, a cool solution to this in the not-too-distant future, I'd much rather increase volume at a lower ROI and lower win rate, but you know, with a higher amount of games per day, per week. Uh, but get, again, like currently, given my personal situation, that's not the case, and so I... It's sort of hard to really do it that mathematically and analytically to know the exact um, trade-off point, like where's the equilibrium there. Uh, but I skew a little bit towards higher ROI, higher win rate, but lower volume right now because of just the situation of me not being able to get everything I want to get down. I agree with that. From a pure financial standpoint, I think that would be just the better uh, choice. But because I'm not a perfect robot and I do like to make decisions sometimes purely for emotional reasons and to, you know, quote unquote, have fun, I do probably place far more wagers than I should. Um, (laughs) I like how you say quote unquote fun. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, because sometimes, sometimes it's, sometimes it's extremely not fun when you Mm -hmm. place like five degen wagers and they all just instantly lose. Uh, it's not and very fun. Not walk off grand slam <laughs> in the bottom of the ninth. Right, right. <laughs> so take me through futures. You guys talk about it, or you have talked about it in the past. Tell me what you would say to a an average person walking into a sports book in Vegas who is planning to bet on futures, and then how professionals who have you know positive expectation value bets or tickets in their pocket should approach it. Sure. I'll start off with making it very clear that there's a good chance, <laughs> unless you have some sort of model driving it, so 
speaking to the average better here who doesn't, be very aware that futures markets are often selling $100 bills for $150 or $200. And what I mean by that is when you sum up all the implied probabilities of each team in a futures market, like let's just take the Super Bowl, for instance, they'll all add up to something close to 130, 140, depending on the book, 150%. And so you're paying quite a premium to place a futures bet in the first place. And so that's why I think it's important to be aware, unless you actually have a, a defined, not a defined, but a calculable edge, there's a good chance you're <laughs> embarking on a losing proposition, which again is totally fine. Like I'm aware how many people bet for entertainment for fun. Um, I do it too. So I guess that would be my first thing is unless you have some reason to believe a, a number is broken, be very aware that if you're close uh, to the margins, you're probably losing already more than you would if you're betting, flipping a coin on spreads. The second thing, maybe I'll go to like an intermediate better, would be for each future that you see in the market, think about ways that you could perhaps create a better number by creating what I call an artificial parlay, meaning you would roll over the money line of requisite events to get there so like for the world series for instance i think the astros are plus 600 or around plus 550 to plus 600 right now if you think that number is going to stay the same let's just fast forward to the end of september perhaps it's around that number still and you see some look ahead prices on what potential series would be in the alds alcs and world series and you can calculate if i bet some amount of money on this alds series then rolled over all of that plus the initial funding into the ALCS and then rolled over all of that money into the World Series, would the return be better than holding some futures ticket? That's something I think a lot of novice or intermediate betters overlook. And then finally, like for more advanced people looking to get into like the mathematical side, just like a single gamer spread, you need to have some way of coming up with a probability of an event occurring. And so... There's ways you can come up with just comparing the teams and coming up with some kind of relative pricing. You can look at maybe historical things that have, you know, select different features. There's a million ways to do this, a machine learning model, a regression model, whatever, where you find different features that tend to correlate to winning a championship or whatever the feature is you like to bet on. Um, but try, try and come up with something that actually produces what the line should be and make sure that there's a big enough discrepancy there because it, and again, um, I guess one final point for all three categories of betters would be to make sure that the expectation of return on your futures bet should exceed the opportunity costs you're giving up of having that money away for four, six, if it's a long season, like baseball up to like seven months. If, 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 Somehow some team, like I think the Indians this year must have been something close to minus 200 or minus 400, like some, probably with some absurd number to win their division. Make sure that it's worth it to get that little of a return over seven months versus something else you could be putting your money in. I was going to say a lot of things, but you covered everything. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I have anything to add. Sorry on for that. hogging. And when but, you uh, say other things, do you mean things like bank interest? Or are you talking about... Being able to compound, you know, a seven month, waiting seven months for a future to, to either pay out or, or not pay out versus, you know, betting games each day and each week and each month to sort of potentially build up to an amount that would be higher than a payout of a future that you think is a, a plus EV bet. Exactly. Well, it's both, right? It's just the opportunity cost. So, for example, one uh, someone on Twitter actually asked me if I thought that it was worth it to place uh, the Patriots to win their division uh, future this 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 year and i think it's at somewhere around minus 650 uh, my answer is very simple i have a very hard time believing they won't win the division but at that price and to lock up you know whatever amount of money for that period of time um, in order for the bet to, to actually cash out you have to see if you can use whatever initial balance you have to maybe make more than the return that you would get from the Patriots winning the division. And so that's 
a decision every individual better has to make. Um, we all have different risk tolerances. We all have different bankrolls. Um, we all have different, you know, edges uh, from game to game. And so uh, that's not something that I or Kieran or anyone really can decide for anyone else. That's, I, I think that's just a personal decision that people have to make for themselves. Yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. And on the topic of bankrolls, do you suggest that people have separate bankrolls for different sports or leagues that they're betting on? Or, or more sort of pertinently, do you do that? Do you separate bankrolls for MLB, NHL, NFL, college football? I do. I, I run each sport and each season of a sport as its own separate fund, partly to just track the performance of each independent of another. Uh, makes it easier um, and then they're just also unrelated so I, I wouldn't want one fund bringing down another uh, because it's in a slump or something or you know you also wouldn't want the possibility of quote-unquote slumps or downswings or unlucky or bad weeks or months to compound and overlap among different sports and then you're really screwed um, so I, I separate everything I don't I guess that's really my only justification. I, I don't really have a strong argument for why. That, that's interesting. I actually, physically, I do not separate. I only have one bankroll, but I do track every sport individually. So at any time, I can look how I'm doing uh, betting on every individual sport and every different type of bet. So if I'm like really doing poorly on money line bets, for example, as opposed to spreads or totals, um, I can just look at all that information. Um, however, I do actually have two separate bankrolls. Um, as I mentioned, uh, I guess, earlier in the pod, um, I do like to place a lot of uh, fun wagers that are sometimes not fun. <laughs> and so <laughs> I do have my main bankroll, which is um, this is you know what I do to make a living bankroll. And I do have a fun bankroll where if I do lose that, uh, well, it, you know, that would suck. But um, well, then it's gone. Um, but while I do have it, I, I use that bankroll to place, um, you know, degenerate bets or things that I just find fun or just want to root for. Um, and I can be much less disciplined with that and just have fun with it. Jerry, have you found that to be positive for your professional bankroll to have that, I guess, entertainment expense fund on the side? Uh, from a financial perspective? Or, or just overall? Just generally. Like, so you can, I, I guess, maybe if it is, you can sort of take your mind off things and, you know, bet on the Oscars or bet on the ESPYs or whatever <laughs> you can bet on some sometimes or just have a... It boosts his morale. Yeah, does it help <laughs> to sort of separate, you know, professional betting life with just having a bit of fun or is it better to just go cold turkey and only focus on the professional bets and do it that way? Does it work for you? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Um, well, since I still do it, I assume the answer is yes, that it does add something to my life. Um, financially, it's certainly not a good decision, I don't think. But again, because I'm not a robot and I do um, want to, you know, live a little bit sometimes, <laughs> uh, take some risks. But I, I will say this, actually. Um, when you do place a lot of bets on things, no matter the size of the wager like it could be a five dollar bet or ten dollar bet but once you place it at least for me personally um i am inclined to pay attention to the thing i bet on um and so like i'll just make an example uh if i put ten dollars on um some sport that i don't really normally watch like the ufc um for that match or in doing research on that bet that i'm about to place I'm going to learn a lot about the UFC, or not a lot, but at least a little bit. And so that knowledge actually does add up. And I think that there's no way to quantify this, but just having those tiny wagers and uh, to to uh, to have my mind on them and to really like, I guess, do things that I would not do otherwise, and and see otherwise and watch otherwise. Um, that actually probably does help. So from that perspective, other than, you know, relaxing sometimes and just placing something for fun, um, that probably does help. Let's talk price. Unlike bookies and totes, the Betfair Exchange is a low-margin, buy-sell, fixed-odds marketplace where the value stays with the punter 
not the house. Ready for the game within the game? Join betfair.com.au. Gamble responsibly. Karen, do you recalculate your bank and, and change your unit sizes periodically every day, week, month, year, or do you just let it, uh, I guess, go throughout the season or the length of the sport that you're betting on? So that that's another thing where it kind of comes down to a personal situation of what you're able to get down. So for instance, like if you're up against the limits, it's hard to really scale anything as your bankroll grows because you can't physically get more money down. I see. Yeah. And in those situations, you are best off just having some static unit size for the whole season. Although like if any listeners have heard of Kelly Criterion, uh, that's certainly something worth looking up and Googling. I won't explain all the math of it and all the trade-offs and the actual stuff that matters within the details. Uh, but if you Google it, there's lots of good resources. I think even the, the official Wikipedia page, I know there's some sketchy stuff on Wikipedia, but it's actually pretty good for Kelly criteria. In layman's terms, basically, as your bankroll grows, your unit should grow. As it decreases, your unit should also decrease. So that's... Uh, something I, I would argue is optimal. And yeah, if I if I physically could, I would do that. Okay, and just curious, do you, are you, you mentioned before you might be risk averse, are you quarter Kelly, an eighth of Kelly? Where do you sit on the spectrum? Yeah, it's tough because no matter how great you think your model is, you have no certainty in the edge it's actually producing. So everything's kind of a guessing game. I guess quarter would probably be what I would use if I, it was possible for me to but it you know it's hard to say it certainly should be some fraction i think something on the order of a quarter is smart so do either of you ever watch markets and try and understand whether the line might move for or against you and, and either wait or or strike at that moment and and try and get the best price you think the market's going to be at because anyone who's watched markets of any kind will understand that there's a lot of uh, it's very unpredictable, let's put it that way, whether it's mm-hmm. those who follow Bitcoin over the last 12 months can probably attest to that. And, and just generally <laughs> in financial markets, the volatility, you know, depending on the situation can be uh, can be extreme. How do you go about it? Do you just say, look, I want plus seven and a half and it hits plus seven and a half, I'm taking it? Or do you say, look, I think it's going to go to eight and maybe eight and a half because this is a public team in the NFL and sure. Monday night and all that sort of thing. How do you approach that? Does it Does it vary depending on the situation? I don't try and guess that, then then you're kind of gambling on gambling, which adds even a whole other <laughs> layer of uncertainty. So uh, I guess there's a lot to unpack there. Um, immediately, if I see edge and there's value, I bet it. Uh, one question I get a lot is if once you've placed the bet with your edge and the line moves further, like in a way that creates even more edge, um, I guess like it moves against you, do you then stake more money uh, because now there's like more value to catch up for that little margin of the line move? Um, I don't know the right answer. Uh, and really, it's hard to do that much analysis that would be helpful because each line move kind of is for its own reasons. Personally, I don't add any more when the line moves against me. I, that's kind of because I guess I'm assuming... Not assuming, but like in my risk averse thought processes, maybe there's some reasons some other people or some part of the market sees value in the other team. And so it's best to just not increase that risk and go even more against someone who's moving the line. But you could argue for either side. I will say I do track closing line value of the bets that my models place. So uh, I, I care very much. And I think that's actually one of the most important metrics to evaluate your model is if it's beating the market. And so that that's something I think is very important. But I, I don't, to answer your question simply, I don't try and predict where lines will go. I, in general, agree with Kieran. I don't track or, or I don't uh, try to predict where lines will go. But uh, there are certain situations where I think that is applicable and would make sense. For example, sometimes we try to predict what a line will be before it's out and locate or I guess try to predict some market 
what's the right word here? Like I'll, I'll say for me, disagreement. Sometimes my models just come up with the number. Like it has nothing. I never do anything based on oh that's the number, so this should be my number. My everything I do is like independent of what. So I, I'm never. So um, so you never. So for like example, if there's like a if there's like a team that you think will be publicly um, you know pounded, you you don't wait for the line to move. It, let's say you're you're betting the contrarian uh, side. You don't wait for it to move first. Uh, no. Like, um, oh, really? Not at all. <laughs> no, I mean, if there's edge, there's edge, and oftentimes, like, the sides that my models seem to be on seem to be some that quote. I mean, I reject this idea of like reverse line move and smart money and stuff, but they tend to be on sides that have that kind of stuff, and so I'm actually. I, everything I do, if if I have evidence that shows it beats the closing line, it's a good idea to bet it soon. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think what I'm, I'll just make an example. Um, so let's say we're betting on the Heisman Trophy winner. If one of the candidates who's like a favorite or in the public eye has a huge game, who I don't think will win the Heisman in the end, then I probably, in in betting against that person, would probably wait for a time when... Uh, to sell high on them, right? So that so for futures especially, I do wait. Um, for example, for the Astros, I'll wait every time they have a slump to add on more to my futures. Uh, I don't know. It, it is a tough question, but I think for certain circumstances and certain situations, I do try to play a little, I guess, cat and mouse game with the market and try to predict where they're going to move. And then best position myself to place a wager that's advantageous for me. So is it fair to say it's a skill in and of itself, or even a gamble in and of itself, to predict the market? And I guess from my perspective, just thinking out loud, is there limited downside? Because if it goes the wrong direction and you don't actually get a chance to bet the side you wanted because there's no edge left, then you just walk away. Versus if it goes the right way, then your edge is there and if you've guessed right or predicted right or you're smarter and you've got it right then the upside is there or is that not not a good thing to do i think it's certainly a gamble uh, kieran's way where he has a line that his model spits out and he just bets when whenever there's value regardless of all these things that you can't really predict you know that's a much more methodical way of doing it and so if you do actually choose and wait um and pick and choose your spots for sure, there's a gamble um, because you could easily be wrong. So, do you guys ever change inputs for your models during a season? Do things or could things potentially change or things that you've missed throughout a season? And if so, is it only when you're losing or down or your edge might not be there, um, depending on how things start out in a season, for example? Never. I never change um, based on like what the actual program and algorithm is preseason. But the algorithm in preseason obviously updates every single day for what it, it sees in the team. So, like, that's built into the model is in football, I guess the first three or four weeks, you quote unquote, like, overreact or you react more strongly than you do later in the season based on what you're seeing. Um, and so, like, there's reactions, I guess, in that way. But that, I don't change the model. Like, none of the code changes or none of it's like, oh, I forgot to do this. Um, when I agree to bet some system based on a model before the season begins, that's what I'm sticking to and trusting. And and there's there's instances where in a really horrible streak, maybe there's a, a scenario you see that the model has lost its edge on its market. And for instance, I think that's happened with my baseball model the last two weeks or so, which I, I had a hypothesize before the season began would happen around September. I just think it happened two or three weeks earlier than I thought it would. And so then I just, I stopped betting. I don't really change the model or try to come up with anything. I agree with that. Unless there is a very strong reason that indicates that my model is just broken, I stick with it because I trusted the long-term edge. Um, So yeah, to answer your question, I do not change the inputs. So if you're watching a lot of games, Jerry, do you think you might see things and think, okay, for some reason this year, um, the defenses are better or, or whatever it might be that's that should impact things would you ever consider 
reevaluating, or just be like, you know what, let the season play out and we'll get to it at the end of the year? Sure. Well, it might not be the end of the year. I'll do reflections periodically throughout the season um, just to see if there might be a cause for concern in any way. But really, if I think that it's just ba- if results are just popping out of pure mathematical variance, then it never really concerns me too much where I have to change something. So everyone has downswings and bad runs. What's the best way to deal with it? Do you stop betting for a week? Do you reevaluate things? Do you, you know, what what's some of the things you put in place in those instances? Because obviously there's a lot of passion. There's a lot of, you know, the poker term being on tilt when things aren't going great. How do you <laughs> put things in place to deal with it just generally? Oh, you double down. You bet <laughs> Go all in no, on that's, the next that, one. That's a joke. That's a joke. Um, Although sometimes I, I admit I, I have done that in the past. Not a good idea, though. How do I deal with it? Well, I guess try to... Hmm. Well, Kieran and I have been doing this for a few years now. And so I think we've all gone through bad stretches, right? And we kind of understand at this point that it's purely... Everything has to be looked at from... Uh, with the long term in mind. And so even if there's a bad streak, even if there's a downswing and, you know, one day you're just really not feeling it, you're just not into it. Um, you still have to trust in your procedure because the way that we're approaching this is through data. It's through math, right? It's not through emotion. And so whatever we feel from anything that's not from from any emotional standpoint, it really doesn't affect or shouldn't affect our decision making because that should be purely rational. So how do I deal with downswings? Uh, you know, if I'm really just on tilt, then I'll probably take a break until I calm down and can make rational decisions again, uh, however long that may be. I, uh, I pour out a Coke Zero and Jack and watch an episode of Curb wake up the next morning and move on. <laughs> no, I mean, I, uh, even more so than Jerry, mine's 100% purely mathematical. Like there is zero emotion in what I am betting other than a little bit of futures. Um, and so I, you know, it's, it's easier when you have like back, t- back tested track record to show that what you're doing is, has edge. Now that's, that's different from what's happened recently with baseball where like you, you do need to be sure to, check and make sure and just be responsible and, and smart and check. Maybe it's possible it has lost some love or all of its edge on the market. And so there's different analyses you can do. Like um, I test for an actual statistically significant amount of failure from the model. Um, and that has to come with some amount of sample size to actually be something I'd ever consider stop doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, down swings, I, I never really, not even never really. I, I truly never stop believing if what I'm doing has been proven to work. Yeah, and also that's uh, another reason why I have my degenerate fund. <laughs> in <laughs> in cases where I am feeling like, oh, let me just place another wager. I'll, I'll do it out of that bankroll and not the one that actually um, that I'm very serious with. So give me your 45-second analysis on trends because... I live here in the U.S. and I've seen a lot of uh, public betting content, let's call it, if we can call it that, which is a lot of it is focused on trends and what I would probably call data mining and going back and cherry-picking certain Mm -hmm. things. How do you both feel about it and and see it from what you're sort of doing? I think a lot of it, when it's through the lens of gambling results, is sometimes it's just, uh, you know, genuine uh light-hearted ignorance by the people posting it i think sometimes it's fairly like intentionally deceitful stuff trying to show people that they're smarter looking at something but when, when people say like team like here's a great example that i always come to is and i don't know the numbers off the top of my head but it's something like since 2003 nba teams at home in game three of playoff series when they're down 0-2, cover the first half spread at like a close to 60 or 65% win rate. And so like 
philosophically, that makes sense, right? They're, they're desperate. They're down 02. Maybe the market wasn't accounting for it since 2003. But knowing that fact says nothing about what the 2018 NBA betting markets have priced that into. And so if you look this year, the first half spreads were several points off of what half of the full game spread would be. And so if you just bet that trend blindly without looking at what the market's actually saying, it's not that helpful. Now, looking at those scenarios, the, the quote-unquote trends, and maybe you can look at how a team's offense or defense performed and how many standard deviations different it was in those situations. And then you can project that to what it would be in this game. And you can see like, okay, this is what the number should be. And then you can actually compare it. But if you're just blindly betting on trends, I'd say close to 90% or more of them are not really predictive or that helpful. Entertaining, sure, but not something you should bet with. Yeah, I think most of the trends in the media, at least, are largely created or or found for entertainment purposes because they just sound cool or they they sound nice, and people, for whatever reason, want to believe in them in in terms of them having predictive value. Again, context matters a lot, right? For for every trend, the example that Kieran brought up, which is. Uh, since t- 2003, you know, the underdogs at home, uh, sorry, the uh, the home team down 0-2 um, covers the first half most of the time. Uh, well, since 03, you know, basketball is a completely different sport now in 2018 than in 2003. And so another one that I do like is when they talk about the World Cup and they have trends from the World Cup when literally every four years, every team is like completely different in terms of players, coaches, um, everything. And so looking at World Cup trends, like this team has never beaten this other team in any World Cup matchup. Well, that doesn't really say anything when, you know, three World Cups ago, half these players weren't even uh, teenagers yet, you know. Yeah. And so context matters for everything. That That's my point. So do you have any process you go through to, ter- to determine what will be or what is predictive and you know it's obviously a, a difficult question just generally to answer but are there things you can be doing to check and validate uh, different things rather than just thinking about or relying on entertainment type trends that we've just discussed my answer is really nerdy i do a bunch of machine learning so it'll feature select um, neural networks perceptron algorithms K means clustering, like a bunch of nerdy stuff that will probably go over people's heads unless they come from a data science background. But basically, there's scientific mathematical ways of finding features that are strongly correlated. And then having watched sports for over a decade, um, you can see if those are things that are just by happenstance or if there's actually a reason there would be causation there. So that's how I go about that. Yeah, I cannot do any of the machine learning stuff. <laughs> and so mine is purely based on feel. Um, it's not very you know, analytical or scientific. Um, and so that's why trends most of the time are not a big part of what I look at. Um, but sometimes I do analyze them, but just from you know my general feel or opinion on a sport, just watching them. So I'm curious if you guys ever find a scenario, situation, sport, whatever it might be, where it might be a tiny corner of the market where you have a distinct edge and you know pretty much for certain that, you know what, in this situation, for whatever reason, the market hasn't caught on to this or I've, oh, Jerry, you might have watched 100 games and noticed that in this specific thing you can capitalize on, on whatever it might be, whether it's mm-hmm. just a, a stupid example. It might be, you know what, third quarters in NBA games at sure. altitude for some reason, teams on the road, uh, whatever, <laughs> some ridiculous thing like that. But yeah. are there any things that you sort of find that you think, you know what, this is legitimate and have found it to be a winning thing? You don't have to give it away if you have, but is that possible? Um, because you always hear, you know, in the tout world especially, but even in other parts of the sports betting sort of ecosystem that there are things like that that exist. Have you found them to exist? And obviously if you would, you wouldn't tell anyone, but is that a possibility? I can make mine oh. public because they're, uh, they're not teammates anymore. Um, and also, I don't really bet these markets anymore uh, just because the limits are so low. But in NBA player prop bets, for basically the whole <laughs> like existence of their time as teammates with Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, if one or the other were out that game betting the over on the points of the other 
was very profitable for me, like very just blindly, not looking at defense or over under or anything. It, you have to react quick to when a player is announced out. But um, and you know, there's a couple backcourts in the NBA like that where they're two very ball dominant players that account for like a large percentage of their offense. And when one's out, it makes it very likely the other scores a lot of points. So that that's one where there's not a whole lot of analytics or predictive math that goes into that. It's just, all right, this guy <laughs> scores all their points when the other guy's out, so I'm betting on it. Yeah, I mean, there are a ton of players I disagree with the market with. A lot in basketball, a few in football. Uh, one good example, I always like to find players who are overrated or underrated in the public public's eye for whatever reason maybe because they're famous maybe because they have a lot of highlights and the casual fan notices them and thinks that they're better than they are a good example of this is i think kobe bryant in his last few seasons was just not a very let's say valuable nba player for the lakers but his name was still kobe bryant right and so in games that he was resting or that he was injured i think that most people thought that the Lakers were worse than they would actually be without him and better than they would than they actually were with him. And so just in disagreements like that, yes, I do I do see a lot of edge in that. Um, I can go on a, a long tangent about a lot of players that I um, disagree with the market with. Yeah, I don't know if I want to get into that. Kieran, you want to talk about any? Or? Mine are a bunch of MLB pictures that I can't make public. <laughs> <laughs> so do you guys think then it's it's valuable to focus on a single sport for for that reason if you're if you can't do neural networks and machine learning on multiple sports like some can do it sounds like Kieran but would you say to someone look just focus on MLB or focus on the the NFC in, in NFL or focus on the you know college football or college basketball or even dig in deeper and just focus on one sport so you can potentially pick up those types of things uh, yeah, I'd say so. I, it's really hard to keep track and have a, a strong and accurate opinion on a bunch of players and a bunch of leagues and conferences and different sports. So um, I'd agree with that. Yeah, I think in most cases, uh, depth is more valuable than breadth in sports yeah. betting, probably, certainly, case, certainly the case. Like if you're very, very good at betting on one sport, um, you should probably focus on that just because it's your best one and you can leave out uh, you know, the other ones that um, you're not very good at. So one last question for you guys, and I certainly appreciate your time. Uh, tips for those starting out. Do you have one or two things or even just one thing you can point to? I think, Jerry, everyone should have a entertainment expense fund that they uh, have a few fun <laughs> bets with, but any uh, more serious ones that you can sort of point to that those who are maybe have done it for a season or a year or two years even and thought, you know what, I might be good at this. What, what would you say to those people if they, they had sort of 10 minutes with you? Sure, this is the thing that I always go to. I think most people underrate the value of bankroll management and just discipline in general in terms of how you're managing your funds and your unit sizes, etc. Sports betting is two parts, right? The first part is choosing winners. The second part is figuring out how to actually manage your money. And I think the latter is extremely important, maybe even more important than the first, than, than the former. Um, it is. And yeah, pro probably so. Actually, definitely so. I, I would say definitely so. Um, that's what really separates people who are long-term profitable in this industry from people who are not, in my opinion. And so that's something that gets overlooked. It shouldn't be. And for anyone who wants to actually be successful and, and is serious about that, uh, doing this, that's something that you have to pay attention to. Um, understand yourself and your own tendencies and how you deal with things like that. And, you know, you have to stay disciplined. I'll, uh, I'll echo all of those points. And for I get a lot of questions about actual, like, tangible, hard technical skills. Um, languages I'd recommend are R and Python. Uh, if you Google, I mean, Code Academy, there's a lot of good resources online to learn these things. Learning how to just simply scrape some data from some site, like for baseball, try and go scrape data from a game on fan graphs. And then just play around with the numbers and you'll start coming up with ideas on your own just while you're 
going through the different libraries and packages in these languages and see what you can come up with. That's a good place to start uh, from the technical side. And yeah, I, I just would probably echo everything Jerry said from the actual like sports betting money management side. Awesome. Jerry and Karen, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was, it was very fun to chat with you both and best of luck with the upcoming uh, college football and NFL seasons. Thanks, appreciate Jake. It. Really appreciate you having us on.